Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today we are honoured to have Dr. Judy Laprod joining us. Dr. Laprod received her degree in physical education at the University of Western Ontario and then went on to complete her physical therapy degree, master's and PhD in the Department of Anatomy at Queen's University. She has previously taught anatomy and physical therapy courses at Queen's University and the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Currently, she is the anatomy course director for the kinesiology and physical education, dentistry and physical therapy programs at the University of Toronto. She also teaches an exciting anatomy elective, anatomy in application, exercise and biomechanics. Her research in the past has primarily focused on clinical assessment and evaluation of patellofemoral pain syndrome, as well as acupuncture management of musculoskeletal disorders. More recently, she has embarked on developing and assessing educational tools for anatomy learning, which are designed to enhance 3D learning. In this episode, we talked about misbeliefs about patellofemoral pain etiology and management strategies, relationship between anatomy, biomechanics, empirical evidence and clinical reasoning, and the importance for clinicians to keep up with anatomy and the literature. Enjoy! Hi Dr. Laprade, thank you so much for spending your night to talk about patellofemoral pain misbeliefs with me. How are you doing? I am doing well, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be an interesting and fun conversation. One of my favorite topics. I think so. It's going to be exciting. To start off, do you want to introduce who you are, what you do, and what a typical week looks like for you? Yeah, sure. Well, I am currently an associate professor at the University of Toronto in the Division of Anatomy. And I have a little bit of extra background degrees, a few previous <laughs> events that led to me becoming an anatomist. I started out in kinesiology and then directly went into a physical therapy degree. So I am a physio by initial training. And then after I finished my physio degree, I became a little bit more interested in becoming a professor. So anatomy seemed to be a good fit for me with a bit of a minor in biomechanics. And so it led me ultimately to this position here. And I get to teach the physio students at U of T. So that's always a good match. I enjoy doing that because what I do on a weekly basis is teach a couple different disciplines, a lot of different anatomy, my favorite of which is musculoskeletal. So my typical week generally looks like a lot of lectures to the physical therapy students, kinesiology students who are just fresh out of high school, and dentistry students. And in a second semester, I also have an elective course that I teach to fourth year upper level arts and science kinesiology students who are interested in a bit more of a functional and anatomical blend of a topic. So I think that that is basically what my week looks like other than a lot of, you know, other things like meetings and prepping for labs, lectures, and generally walking around and enjoying how my students are learning in the lab. That's my favorite thing to do. That's wonderful. Regular listeners would know I'm a physiotherapy student at U of T, so obviously I've been taught by Dr. Laprade not only in the PT program, I was a graduate of the kinesiology program at U of T, and Dr. Laprade, your anatomy course is so fundamental to my 
passion in musculoskeletal anatomy, especially that fourth-year course. It's still probably the top two favorite courses I have taken in my undergrad, and I learned oh, a lot, a lot. That is high praise from you, Tiffany. Thank you. Definitely that fourth-year course is one of my favorites to teach as well, because as you know, that course, we spend a whole lot of time underscoring the understanding or the delineation of potential myths or misconceptions in both exercise and rehabilitation worlds. So the fact that it's a small seminar course and we had a fairly compact group and we were able to delve into some topics and even go sort of off topic and discuss other things is always so much fun. I think it was probably one of the things that when I first introduced that course, it was one of the first things that I ever really realized, oh, this could be a different way of teaching. You know, this could be more conversational, more opportunity for students to bring their perspectives and other backgrounds, you know, as you did, you you had a lot of background in biomechanics. And so, you know, a lot of the kin students bring that to the forefront, their, their understanding of sports injuries. And this type of curriculum also became the foundation of what I did with the physical therapy program here at U of T for the anatomy training, because I wanted to offer that same experience to the PTs, because who else better to have that opportunity to really talk about high level mechanics, not math. <laughs> As you know, I'm not good at math, but high level mechanics plus high level functional anatomy, and then understand how the body works and challenge our understanding of what we do in practice. So that's always really gratifying to have that opportunity to really have deep discussions with students, or at least put a little light on for them that they think about and come back and ask, and explore more. It is a privilege to have you teach those, those courses. Uh, We're really privileged. So today's topic is about patellofemoral pain syndrome, and you've done your graduate work in this and continue to be really passionate about the topic. What led you to focus your graduate work on this and continue to be passionate on it? Well, like many researchers, there's usually a personal story it's either something you were introduced to early on and just were intrigued by, or you're experiencing it yourself. And I'm the latter. So years of being athletic, playing sports, and unfortunately developing a lot of knee pain myself, ultimately leading me to understand that I had patellofemoral syndrome. And just being frustrated by not being able to get it managed, not having a solution, and not a really understanding even when I was a physio student, not fully understanding what was going on myself and, you know, talking about it in our training program, you know, you're told, well, this is kind of what the clinical scenario looks like. And then this may be the ways that you manage it. And it never really worked for me. It never really felt like it was a good fit. And so as I was continuing through my physical therapy training, I was just more and more interested about there has to be better understanding of that. And, and as I was looking into some of the literature about it, I was like, well, that's, that's very confusing. <laughs> a lot of confusion. And, you know, there's a lot of opposing theories with regards to how patellofemoral syndrome is developed. For me, I think it was overuse, athletics, overuse, extreme repetition, a lot of jumping in the sports that I participated in. And I think it just led to damage over time. And then, you know, as a physio student in training and in, in my progression to become a physio, I wanted to be better at actually treating the condition. And I was also at the same time interested in, in pursuing graduate work. And it seemed like it was a good match. I happened to have a colleague friend who was in biomechanics at Queens at the time. 
he and I had discussions, quite a lot of discussions about where knee pain is derived, the mechanics of knee pain, basics of like what kind of things might be good to measure. And that really led me into my master's because I had the opportunity to have his guidance. I think that was a, a really important thing that I had somebody who was already in the world. He was doing a study that was kind of adjacent to patellofemoral syndrome, and he kind of helped me jumpstart a couple of different approaches to my master's. The first part of my graduate work was looking at muscle activation using EMG. And then it led further into my PhD where the EMG studies were not really as conclusive as I'd hoped. I I think that that's always a challenge. EMG is is a challenging topic to be conclusive with. But then I was more interested in mechanical alignment, predisposing factors. So I just went on to my PhD and At the time of my master's, I was co-supervised by a mechanical engineer who had a lot of interest in knee pain as well. (laughs) So it was interesting because I had a a physio as well as a a mechanical engineer co-supervising me throughout a large part of my graduate work. And it really helped underscore the necessity to look at more than just one little aspect, you know, to, to have a little broader idea of how to measure, how to interpret. So yeah, I ended up continuing on in my PhD, uh, working on patellofemoral topics and, and that extended into my first few years as a, a faculty member as well. So I, I really, really thought I became fairly grounded in the understanding of patellofemoral syndrome. And it was probably one of the first times also that I had an initial epiphany, perhaps, that a lot of the research that had been published in the review studies that have been published or the commentaries seemed very conflicting. And a lot of times you would interpret it as, oh, this makes sense that this is a condition that's caused by this, um, perhaps an anatomical variation or a mechanical derivation of some normal pattern. Uh, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized there was just a lot of misconceptions and a lot of assumptions. And then that translated into a little bit of almost a cookie cutter type of approach to treatment. And I found myself developing speeches and talks that I was invited to give more than a couple times to talk about what do we know from the research, but what do we know from anatomy? What do we know from mechanics? And how does this two pieces of information intersect? And how does that help us understand how to be more knowledgeable or approach the individual with a patellofemoral syndrome a little bit more specifically. So just to establish a common ground with between ourselves and the listeners, what is patellofemoral pain syndrome? Well, that is a great question. I think that's, <laughs> that could be a question that people still have difficulty answering in this certain clinical realms. It's still, I don't think it's perfectly defined. I think that by the very fact that it's called a syndrome, indicates to anybody who knows a syndrome is usually a cluster or a category that's sort of an overarching label. And within that syndrome, there's a number of symptomatic presentations that could be at the root for causing it. The simplest definition of patellofemoral syndrome is usually, the fallback is usually to say it's retropatellar pain. And to be more specific, retropatellar pain that is more exacerbated by forces through the knee, particularly in positions like deep knee bending, kneeling, squats, going up and down stairs, 
and even sitting for a long time with the knee bent at about 90 or more, where you would presume that mechanical pressure of the patella on the adjacent femur would increase to the point where the pain has been transmitted. The second thing that is necessary usually for a patellofemoral diagnosis is to say there is not ligamentous structures at fault, there's not a meniscus at fault, there's not a fat pad, there's not capsular pain, there's not some sort of referred pain from the back, there's not a tendonitis, (laughs) you know, so it's kind of a frustrating thing to diagnose cleanly because you end up kind of trying to rule out all other conditions that could possibly cause a similar pain. So if you have a fat pad aggravation, it does often present as almost retropatellar pain. And it could be that it increases when you kneel on your fat pad. So it really is not as straightforward as a lot of people assume. And when I was a student, honestly, some of the diagnostic tools, clinical tests that we were taught to use for it, we're very nonspecific. I think we've gotten more specific with some of the diagnostic approaches now, but it still means that you have to be a fairly skilled clinician to rule out all the other things that could be mimicking it. So I usually refer to it as a diagnosis of exclusion. So your graduate work and the few years of work you've involved in this area as a faculty is really a niche intersection of anatomy and biomechanics. Is that right? Yeah. I I don't know whether it was because I was already leaning towards that, that I chose patellofemoral syndrome, or if because I chose patellofemoral syndrome, it naturally blossomed into me wanting to inquire more about why we didn't understand it well. And that led me to see that there was an anatomical foundation that you needed to implement. And there was also a huge part of the biomechanics you needed to understand. Like, You can't understand patellofemoral syndrome unless you appreciate contact pressures and load and forces and dynamics of, you know, tracking and tethering, all of the things that you read in the literature that are suggestive of why patellofemoral syndrome develops. And, you know, to go back to the initial question of what is patellofemoral syndrome, you know, within the broad label, you still have these subcategories. You have sometimes that people will, again, relabel it as an overuse type syndrome, repetitive syndrome, a maltracking, a malpositioning, lateral patellar facet overload. So there's all these different sort of more subtle labels that people will assign to it, either based on the history that the patient will present or by the physical findings, then they will add it all together and say, well, I think that the reason you have this particular patellofemoral pain is because you appear to have maltracking or because you have the tendency for your patella to drift laterally, et cetera. So, so that's what makes it challenging as well, because as you likely know, when you're first starting out as a clinician and practicing, you're so focused on being accurate in first your diagnosis and then determining how you might manage it. And certainly understanding the mechanism of how something arises to cause pain will always guide your treatment. So it's very helpful when you have some standard things that you can put in place that will treat it. It's not this simple in patellofemoral syndrome because you can put something in place, you can uh, assign some sort of treatment to a client and then have it do zero difference. (laughs) And then you're back to square one saying, well, I thought that if I did this particular intervention, 
it should have made a difference, you know? And, and so that's, I think the two edged sword of clinical practice, it can be frustrating, but it can also be extremely gratifying when you feel, figure it out and find the right combination for that person. And to add to the complexity of uh, managing knee pain, patellofemoral pain can be also just you know purely multifactorial. There can be yeah. multiple different etiologies. It can be a local contribution, meaning within the joint, or central contributors, meaning from the nervous system. And then you know we can also see that biomechanics doesn't always correlate with pain, which mm. is which adds to absolutely. The complexity of the patellofemoral pain conversation, but for the sake of today's episode, we want to really narrow down on the relevant biomechanical cause or local contributed patellofemoral pain within the traditional physiotherapy for this. Yeah, exactly. I think to to cover the potential centralized other contributors is is a much larger conversation and much more complex. It, it's complex enough on its own, so. Yeah. We'll try to keep it narrow. <laughs> yeah. So within the traditional physiotherapy you've observed for patellofemoral pain, what is something that you think we can use more thinking on? Well, I really think that there's a large amount of, I don't want to say misleading information, but almost excessive noise. If you, ha if you like in the literature, where, you know, if you read an, a reviewed article of any date, you know, that it's almost still consistently reporting so many factors that would lead to patellofemoral malalignment or malpositioning, you know, is it excessive pronation? Is it, you know, you know, rotation of the hip? Is it, sometimes you'll see in the same article, excessive tibial external rotation and internal rotation or valgus and varus. It, it becomes incredibly hard to determine what it is that we are supposed to pay attention to and what is the thing that we could correct. So I think there's two things that I think really became fairly high in my list of things to try and evaluate a little bit better is how much do we actually think that the patella displaces. And if you look at the breakdown of mechanics of knee movement, and we look at data and studies that have been done like decades ago, when they first started looking at patellar tracking as a potential, they started doing studies, both cadaveric and in vivo, where they would put contact paper underneath the patella and on the femoral trochlear groove and try to determine where and when the patella enters into that groove and how much of it contacts. And this is where we get our ultimate understanding in, you know, most uh, musculoskeletal textbooks or biomechanical textbooks that will report, you know, the patella doesn't enter the trochlear groove until about 20 or 30 degrees of knee flexion. At which point, you know, if you look at any matching bony patella and trochlear groove on the femur, and if you looked at an x-ray of the same person's knee, a skyline view, these are extremely congruent surfaces. The angle of the patella tightly matches that trochlear angle and the distal end of the femur, and rightly so that intercondylar space is supposed to be a sitting point for the patella. So when we start to make these assumptions that the patella is quote unquote malaligned or malpositioned or displacing, I question whether we've really matched the biomechanical knowledge of the fact that once that patella is in that groove, 
it really doesn't go anywhere. You know, it is really sitting tightly and there's not a lot of movement room or space for it to shift heavily off to one side. And so when we start to talk about, oh, you know, somebody is an overpronator and therefore it's displacing the patella or tilting the patella, or when we go into a detailed assessment to determine whether the lateral edge of it is lifting more than the medial, do we think it's tethered by the retinacula? Now, these I'm not saying out of hand that these are all wrong. All I'm saying is that why do we think that that's the one thing that we should be really paying so much attention to? And it seems to take up a lot of space in the literature as to etiologies. You know, we need to be ter- determined whether the patella is drifting. My counter to that is until the patella gets into the groove, that's when it's most mobile. And we all know this clinically because when you assess patellar mobility, what position do you put the leg in? Full extension. Why do we do that? Because then the patella is not locked into its bony groove. So that allows us to assess mobility. Is there some restriction gliding lateral medial? Is there any tilting that is evident when you're sitting with the patella floating above the of the femur at that point? I would posit that that's probably the one time when you can see whether or not the patella has a tilt or a drift positioning respective to the femur. I'm not sure that you can determine that totally quantitatively because it would have to be a comparison to the other side. And most people have bilateral patellofemoral syndrome. It may not be very easy to determine how much tilt or drift there is. But the point being is that if we are thinking that patella is malpositioned, then what is the factor? What is it that we actually should be thinking about? Well, we should probably be thinking about do we have a straight entry into that intercondylar groove when we start to flex? So think of it as, and this is not my analogy, it's an analogy I read in an article once of a boat entering into a tight channel, which is V-shaped. And sometimes when boats would go down a very narrow river with a V-channel, in order to prevent the boat from bumping up against each side of that channel, they would attach ropes to it to guide it. So I think of that as the patella with all of its tethers, the quadriceps tendon, patellar ligament, the retinacula, uh, retinacula on either side. So these are your guiding structures that are supposed to keep your patella basically suspended within this soft tissue. And so if they're tight on one side, let's just say for the sake of argument, we'll go with one of the bigger suggestions is that the lateral retinacula is extremely shortened or tight. It would pull the patella bias it to the lateral side. So then as you were going into flexion, the lateral facet of the patella would bump up against the lateral femoral conduct or that aspect of that intercondylar groove. But then as soon as it bumps up against it, it then immediately centers. You know, I I don't think we have any evidence in the literature that I have seen that indicates that dynamically we still have a malpositioning that sustains once you enter into more and more knee flexion. And why is that? Well, biomechanically speaking, you have no choice. The patella has to follow the groove. It's shaped to match it. And your tethers, no matter how shortened or changed they might be, are probably not going to alter that very much. So that was one of the very first myths that I felt very much struck me as a bit of a hard one to accept. As soon as I 
understood the mechanics of the knee a little bit better and looked into more of that more base science research that was looking at tracking and mechanical positioning. And I mean, we all agree that the contact is is exactly what we read about, you know, enters into the groove 20 to 30 degrees, has the most contact on either facet is when you're getting into 90 to 120 degrees of flexion. And that's where you get like a lot of forces through the patella, which is explaining, of course, why people have so much pain in those positions, because we have the most forces biomechanically speaking. So that, that was one of the bigger things. And then the other thing which was confounding to me was talking about the sources of pain. I didn't really appreciate it until I understood histology a little bit better. <laughs> so in my grad work, as I learned more about cellular understanding about the structure of cartilage, understanding how cartilage is maintained, and the fact that cartilage has no innervation, cartilage has no blood supply. So it's a great structure. <laughs> it's a great tissue until you actually break it. And as soon as you break it, it's really, really hard for it to do its job, A, because it no longer has the right composition to do what exactly what it's supposed to do, which is to resist pressures. But more importantly, it also doesn't heal well. So for me, this displacement theory only really made sense, as I said, as it enters into the intercondylar groove, let's assume that it's, you know, bumping up against the lateral aspect. And to me, what made sense was to say, okay, so as it's entering into the groove and it rubs up against the side, the cartilage no longer has the opportunity to have its normal nutrition because it requires a pumping action. And the pumping action for cartilage means pressure on, pressure off. But now we're just maintaining pressure as we're dragging the patella against that groove until it centers. So that means that that cartilage may be not receiving its nutrition anymore, now starting to break down. As soon as it starts to break down, it doesn't hold its biomechanical properties anymore. And as soon as it doesn't do that, it displaces its forces to a highly innervated subchondral bone. So that's where our pain comes from, because the cartilage is now transferring all of its forces to the subchondral bone. So I think that's where I started off thinking, I don't know. I don't know if we have a good view of this. And so then it led me to say, what are we doing to manage this? that would actually change that patellar alignment because everything I read was now geared towards taping or strengthening or repositioning the patella whilst in the groove. And I just thought that that didn't make any sense to me. So now we're saying if the patella were to displace, it would only be in the circumstance of it entering the groove. Well, I think that when we think about all the biomechanical suggested factors, like a malalignment of the, let's, let's just take one, for example, of um, weak hip rotation. So uh, I actually was quite drawn to the theory that rather than the patella being pushed or pulled by its soft tissue out of position, I liked the idea that the patella was suspended in this soft tissue but because of the weakness at the hip, the femur was allowed to rotate underneath it a little bit. And therefore, placing the femur just a little bit to an offset position compared to where the patella was. And then as you in enter into more flexion, now again, you're doing the same thing that I just discussed, which is, you know, you're hitting the side of the intercondylar groove because 
the femur is malpositioned. So, you know, I, I think that the hardest thing that we'll ever be able to figure out is that first big thing is, are we talking about the patella being dragged by soft tissue changes, either weakness of a muscle that's allowing it to drift or tightness of a fascia or, or a retinaculum that's creating it to be pulled in one direction? Or do we assume that the patella is where it is? Like it's embedded in a huge tendon. It's embedded. And so how much can we actually pull it offline of that huge, strong quadriceps tendon unless we have some change underneath it? So as I said, I think I was a little bit drawn towards the more likeliness is that the patella is sort of hanging in where it is. It's always going to be there. And what's happening underneath it is more likely to malposition it or put it off track as it enters into the groove. But again, once once we're in the groove, I think anybody can prove this to themselves. Bend your knee to 90 degrees and then try to push your patella out of, out of place. Where does it go? Not very far. <laughs> and if you try to tilt it or reposition it at that point, how much force does that take? And take the, the most common mechanical treatment of patellofemoral syndrome was McConnell taping. And, you know, so can a piece of tape on the skin tilt and change the position of the patella enough at that point of where you have the most compressive force? Is, is that enough? So I think that's like a very intriguing line of study, you know, trying to, to sort that out. Although we know that taping can manage patellofemoral pain. How do we explain that? Well, I think there's a probably three or so theories on that one that I have either read and sort of felt like, oh yeah, that's that's a pretty good theory or kind of what I've pieced together myself knowing a bunch of physiology and, and related fields of study as well. I would suggest that one of them and probably maybe it's the more appealing one is that we are causing some proprioceptive feedback to be provided or a, a distractor because we do have some evidence from, you know, a while ago, I say like 10 or so 15 years ago when we were starting to look at management of OA. OA is a very pervasive, painful syndrome. And we were starting to see some interesting results of people just wearing neoprene sleeves. So put a neoprene sleeve on someone with osteoarthritis in the knee and their pain reduces. So why is that? Is it because we are providing more proprioceptive input through the skin, the musculature, the tendons, the joint capsule? Are we providing more input? Or are we just providing sort of a block of pain because we have a secondary input going on there? So I think tape could be aligned in the same sort of area of like, well, probably, probably tape is a little bit of proprioceptive input. And maybe that's enough to start changing the pain signaling. So that's one theory that I think that's a, a decent one. I think another theory would be that patellofemoral taping is effective. In my experience, I had done some research on patellofemoral taping, although it was a grad student of mine that didn't fully complete like and publish the paper. What we did find was kind of interesting preliminary results was that people who responded to taping were more likely to have pain relief when they were a bit hypermobile rather than hypomobile. So if you had a little bit more movement of your patella, 
if you tested them and you, you did a medial lateral displacement or a superior inferior displacement, you're a bit more mobile. The tape actually was more effective in reducing their subjective pain. And my theory on that was, again, going back to this initial thought of if we think that it's rubbing up against the intercondylar groove somewhere, we need to actually reposition it before it enters the groove. So if you already have a very tight retinaculum, laterally, most commonly, and you already have the patella a little bit tilted in that lateral position, it's going to be very hard to reposition it with just surface tape, no matter how how tough that tape is. And if you do put enough force with that tape through the knee in order to reposition it, it actually causes more pain for people because now you're pressing their, their patella down even more as it enters into the groove. And so that's not an effective management. So when you see someone doing really well with patella femoral taping intervention, I always wonder if they're more mobile, if they have more give within that soft tissue suspension. So I think that was kind of an interesting finding that we had in that, that particular study. And I think that the other thing that we might want to consider is going back to the back to tissue mechanics. So as I mentioned, cartilage needs to be allowed the opportunity to have pumping action, to load and offload. Now, does that load and offload have to be measurably significant? So, you know, I did a radiographic study in my PhD and we looked at, you know, different positioning in the patella in a skyline view with tape and not tape. And we didn't really find a whole lot of measurable difference of patellar position, but subjective changes in pain. So why is that? Why, why could you have no measurable difference in alignment or realignment, but have it be pain relieving for someone? And my suggestion is that the patella is super small and those cartilage facets are quite small surface area. So knowing again, mechanics, putting a little high intensity pain in a very small area or a, a lot of pressure in a small area will cause a, a lot of pain. And it doesn't take much then to change that pressure point. If you can just shift it a smidgen, you know, <laughs> that's not a very technical measure, but <laughs> a little bit. So I used to demonstrate it when I was uh, doing these lectures and I would say, put, put your hand out in front of you with your palm up in the air and put your finger in the middle of your palm. And now just change the position of your finger a little bit so that you're shifting the pressure off the middle of your palm just a little bit to one side without actually moving your finger. You can do that. You can have this little tiny redistribution. Maybe that's what the tape is doing. Maybe it's just redistributing the force enough to allow the normal pumping action and the reduction of that force through the facade. That is very interesting findings we have on this area. Uh, so, so, so many literature has been written on it. So much ink has been spilled. I think some of the research I've read that that agrees with what you're saying, like, for example, there is really good high-quality evidence to show that taping can reduce patellofemoral pain immediately, but not long-term. Yes. Which speaks to distraction on the skin can distract you from the pain in the knee. Mm -hmm. Or... Uh, the other article I read about how there are particular factors where people can respond to teletaping better. For example, having a larger mean keel angle. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, again, 
the the track that the train's running on. It's a lot more than what a lot of people think. What taping will do, which is to pull the patella to a particular direction. Well, and if you really are someone of a proponent and follow McConnell's intervention protocol really closely, you'll note that one of the most key parts to that particular test and retest scenario is that you place the tape on and you do a single step down, right? A single leg step down test. That's a very telling test for someone with patellofemoral syndrome, especially when you do it slow and a a fairly deep step down, it causes a lot of stress on the knee that's, that's already in pain. So what you do with McConnell taping is you assess all the, the different dimensions of tilt and rotation and displacement. And you try to tape that patella into the position in full extension to correct those malalignments. And then you retest them doing the step down. And you do it repeatedly until you find the exact position that the tape needs to be in to reduce the pain. So again, I I did this many, many times. You know, I treated lots and lots of people with patellofemoral syndrome when I was in clinical practice. And I can remember doing this protocol and thinking, you know, there's some people that it just happens immediately. It doesn't even hardly matter which way I tape them. (laughs) You know, like, you know, I, I actually even had a few people who was really confounding to me because typically what was always said in the literature is that it's a lateral tightness, a lateral retinacular tightness. So you're always trying to lift that lateral border of the patella away from the intercondylar femoral border. But every once in a while, you'd have somebody that you actually take towards it and that would relieve it. And I'd be like, I don't know why this is working. <laughs> like, but then there are times, you know, in, in our practice where, in the end, you kind of, you want to provide that pain relief for that client. And you have to understand what's the intention of this treatment. So is the intention of taping a patella into a different position to be a long-term management strategy? No, it's meant to be a pain relief for a short, short term, as you mentioned, so that you can implement something else. And oftentimes that other something else is a strengthening protocol, a, some other management strategy that addresses the underlying condition or the predisposing factors to that development of that condition. So that makes it really complicated too, because most of the studies on patellofemoral taping also incorporate a secondary or tertiary treatment intervention. Well, how do you pull those apart? I mean, this is just literally the the challenge of physical therapy management and our literature. This is probably my biggest statement across the board for physios. It is going to be incredibly difficult to prove, for the most part, in almost any condition, especially overuse ones, especially syndromes, that one management strategy is the key and that this one thing is going to make the difference. And even if there was that one thing that made the difference when we do studies and we try to mimic our clinical practice, we, we have a hard time proving what this one thing works because honestly, we, we approach it holistically. We look at more than one factor. We try to address all those things. And often it's a combination that works. And it's really hard to prove in randomized control trials that these things work because, uh, because it's this combination. Um, so I feel like our, our profession, we get frustrated with the lack of evidence, the lack of hard evidence. 
to say, you just have to do this one technique, but we never do just that one technique in clinical practice. So when we see a study on that one technique and it says nothing works or that it needs more research, which is very common, uh, it, it tends to be discouraging. And so my stance has always been if the clinical randomized control trials can't support what we're doing, we need to return to our basics. And what's our non-changing, non-debatable proof? Anatomy, mechanics, physiology. These things have not changed. So what we need to be better at is applying those principles to understanding our clients' etiologies and determining what factors are important and key, and that will guide our treatment. So going back to the tape, if we're putting the tape on and we know that it's only a short-term relief, then that should be our rationale for using the tape. We should only be taping so that we can give them a a window of time where they are pain-free so that they can do the more intense exercises they might need to do without pain. Because that's the other horribly difficult thing about femoral syndrome is you try to train someone who clearly has some muscular imbalances, let's just say, for example. And I really want to work on that. The problem is that they can't do those exercises because they have such pain. And we also know from the literature that when we have swelling and inflammation acutely around the knee, it actually shuts off the quadriceps. So, you know, you have this effusion happening. It actually reciprocally inhibits the quadriceps. And then you actually can't do the good work that you need to do. So unless you get rid of some of those initial things and we understand that the interventions that we're doing for that are very temporary so that we can do something more long-term. I think that's probably one of the things that I like to emphasize when I'm teaching students in physio as well, is to say, you have to have a good reason. So why, why are you doing this? What is your rationale for this management technique? Yeah, absolutely. This topic is so complex. I remember reading one article, very interesting one, even finding that in their particular sample group, the lateral taping versus what's most common, the medial taping, has a superior pain reduction effect than the medial. And even the neutral, which has no pulling in medial or lateral direction, has better pain reduction effect than the medial taping. And the literature is conflicted here and there, although you can find clinical practice guideline that puts together a very good summary of the literature. Ultimately, when we go into the practice, don't let the clinical practice guidelines shut your mind and apply a cookie cutter approach. Yeah. And I think we have to question some things too, like what can we make a change to? You know, you mentioned Q angle before, and I remember when I first entered into this field of study and really researching patellofemoral syndrome, I was convinced that Q angle was a big factor, that the reason that we report patellofemoral syndrome more in women is that women generally have a bigger Q angle and therefore it leads to maltracking and da, 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 da. And I thought, well, that totally makes sense. But then, you know, as I worked into this field a little bit more, there was more other factors that they were mentioning and it became more cloudy. And then there was conflicting research about, well, there was no correlation with Q angle. And then there was some correlation with Q angle. You know, you can pick up three articles, 10 articles on either side of the argument But in the end, what does it mean? Q angle. So 
you know, we can't actually change cue angle on some people. If you have wider hips and your cue angle is greater, how am I changing that? Like, what's the intervention for that? So great, we've identified that people potentially may have more predisposition to having patellofemoral pain if they have a greater cue angle. So then what's my intervention from a physio perspective? Surgically change their hip width? <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not a strategy. And so there are some things that we see in the literature that you can address, you know, someone who has flat feet or, you know, one flat foot that has patellofemoral syndrome unilaterally, maybe it's related to change the pronated position, put a little arch support in, realign the tibia, changes some of the factors that are at the knee, maybe that does address it, you know, but there were some that were just a head scratcher to me is like, what am I supposed to do with some of these very obviously embedded anatomical malalignments. Like that's just their, their frame. That's their anthropometrics. How do I change that? So I think that we also have to be careful, as you say, not to get pulled in by systematic review or, you know, an overview article that says these are all the things we should look at. And and these are always a factor because in the end, what does that mean for our management? Yeah. And we're also touching a really important discussion here when, about how, how about our relationship with anatomy and biomechanics. Fundamental anatomy and biomechanics should inform our clinical reasoning while letting the person present as they are. Yeah. They are not only about their knee. That's why there are so many conflicting evidence. And I think that that really, you know, one of the things that as an example of that if I can kind of change gears a little bit from the taping to muscle retraining, for example, because my master's was on the EMG and looking at quadriceps activation, I, I told this story to your class, I'm sure, about my thesis defense as my master's students. And I think it, it was, again, one of those moments in my progression through the, my career where I became more and more aware of the necessity to really understand your anatomy lest you say something that makes no sense, you know? So the scenario is I've done an EMG study and I've taken all the more highly recommended clinical exercises for patellofemoral syndrome, which includes short arc knee extension. I was looking at changing the foot position to be slightly tibially internally rotated or externally rotated while doing a knee extension. And the most popular one at that time was having someone squeeze a ball, do some isometric adduction while doing a mini squat. And so my study was EMG. I did indwelling electrodes in the VMO, the VM, the VL. And I was looking at the relative recruitment for these various exercises. And what I found, not surprisingly, is that just extending the knee was fine. Like we didn't have to add in all these additional realignment positioning things. And we didn't really see a significant difference with the adduction, which to me was quite surprising because as a clinician at the time, I was working as a clinician while I was doing my grad work. And I often found that having someone have a ball between their legs while they were doing a squat or doing a little adduction while they were doing some resisted knee extension, I thought it was really recruiting the VMO. I felt like that was causing it to come on more strongly. And the reason I thought it was a valid 
suggested exercise was because in the literature, as I was reading about this and planning my research, the theory was based on anatomical attachment. So the vastus medialis oblique has its origin on the adductor magnus tendon. And then it attaches, blends in with the quadriceps tendon via the patella is embedded there to the tibial tuberosity. So the theory was that if your origin is flexible and weak, so if you don't have a good adductor magnus contraction or strength, and the muscle contracts rather than stabilizing the patella medially, which is the is the suggested function of VMO, is to keep the patella medially positioned, that it would then pull the adductor magnus tendon towards the patella and allow the patella to drift. So the theory was we set the adductor magnus to create a strong origin for the VMO to pull from. So here I am presenting all of this to my graduate defense committee in my master's and presenting the fact that we found really no difference between the recruitment using different positions and that the straight off extension of the knee was just as good, if not better than all others. And one of the people on my defense committee was my anatomy professor, who was a retired doctor and very knowledgeable in anatomy. And he said, just, just go back and tell me why, why the VMO needs to, you know, you need to do adduction again because it's attached to the adductor magnus. Is that what you said? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And he said, well, where exactly on the adductor magnus is it attached? And I said, well, it's the tendon, you know, the one that goes down to the uh, adductor tubercle, the, the tendon there. And he said, right. Now remind me, is, is there more than one part to the adductor magnus? And I said, yes, there's two parts. There's the hamstring portion and the adductor portion. And he said, and which part of the ham, of the uh, adductor is the one that the tendon goes down to the adductor tubercle? And I said, oh, it's the hamstring part. And as it was coming out of my mouth, I wanted to cry because immediately it struck me that I said, I thought, oh my gosh, here we are basing our theory on the adductor magnus tendon and we we have learned that the adductor magnus portion that is going down to the adductor tubercle is the more vertical portion and acts like a hamstring muscle. So that's why we call it the hamstring muscle. And what's its action? Hip extension. It actually contributes to hip extension, not adduction of the leg. And here we are using this as our theory. And I thought, I am going to fail my defense. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pass my master's right now because I've just been, you know, I've missed a very large logical leap. And the kind man that he was, instead of telling me that I was a dummy uh, immediately, he's, he took that opportunity to have a really good discussion. And he said, well, isn't that interesting that, you know, where did that come from? Where, where, where was the presumption? How does that translate to clinical practice? And, and it really was one of those light bulb moments for me that I was like, see, this is why we have to pay more attention to our, our anatomy, because here we uh, have for years been assuming that we had to squeeze a ball between our knees to do some adduction to stabilize our VMO. And he said, well, why do you think that the squat with the ball works anyways? And he goes, if it's not the adduction, let's come up with an idea. And, and ultimately we, we talked about it as a group and we thought maybe, maybe it was because we needed better alignment of our knees. And that ended up being proven out later in research in, in a couple of years later, there was a lot of research that then focused on the alignment of the hip, allowing the knee to collapse medially. So we were actually doing a good thing. 
we were actually putting a ball in between our knees to keep our knees straight and not allowing it to collapse into valgus. And that thus allowing the quadriceps to do its job properly. And he said, well, maybe even when you do a squat, when you stand up, you're doing hip extension. Maybe the adductor is getting, you know, fired on by that motion as well. And so maybe squats are the right thing to do. And I, and I said, yeah, maybe, maybe. So obviously I passed my master's defense, but that was a, that was a crucial moment of learning for me. And one that I never really stopped thinking about. Um, And it continues to be one of those recurring themes for my own teaching practice is like how important is understanding all the details of anatomy when we're putting together a clinical practice guideline. Absolutely. That gets me really excited because I'm a big MSK anatomy nerd and knowing all the details actually really helps with my clinical reasoning. And even as uh, I work as a strength conditioning coach at the University of Toronto, just reasoning based on what I know about anatomy. Hopefully I still retain all the accurate information. It's a progression, right? Like even at that point, I've been practicing for two years and I was a grad student in anatomy and that was a help to me to continue to review my anatomy. It was like a privilege as a physio to be able to go to the anatomy lab weekly and look at things, knowing that I had a client coming in that had something that I was like, oh, I better review that. And I got to do that right away. But it just made me think my approach was always anatomy x-ray vision. My approach was always, can I see the structures in layers? Can I see the structures in their proper mechanical form? Am I envisioning the injury properly? Am I seeing how this intervention might change something? Do I see that? Do I understand the mechanics? Do I understand the anatomy? Have I reviewed the anatomy enough to be accurate? And and I guess that has really always informed my teaching approach. As you well know, I hammer away, even in the first year kin students, I, I don't let them off the hook about knowing the right things for detail for function, because it's important. You, you don't just guess at what muscles you're strengthening when you're a strength and conditioning coach. You have to know. You also have to know when certain exercises don't actually target those muscles properly or somebody's form is bad and thus not doing the best benefit for doing that exercise. Like if you're not going to do the exercise correctly, why are you doing it? Right? So it became my mantra. And shortly after I finished my master's, that's when I started doing these talks about the myths of patellofemoral syndrome from an anatomical approach. And I did that talk many times. <laughs> many different groups. And I always got such a great response from the clinicians because I think like you and like me, and maybe many of the listeners today would agree that, you know, they get excited about thinking about their anatomy training. They wish they could go back and do it again. And, you know, when someone reminds you that the reason that this is working is because of these anatomical truths or this biomechanical principle it reinforces your understanding of what you're doing. It makes you believe that you are capable of figuring out even the more difficult clients that come across your your clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. So you briefly mentioned how in the literature, there are exercises like short arc extensions, weaning extension only in the end range of the knee, or things like doing extensions with the toes pointing out to target the VMO. Like, why are these exercises being made up and what are the theories behind them? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. And this is one of those things that I could probably talk about for an hour, but I won't uh, because I got really excited about um, learning more about the vastus medialis oblique head. Like you said, you know, you get excited about knowing the details of a muscle. And because I was in the anatomy division while I was doing my graduate work, my graduate work was clinically oriented, but I had the opportunity to dissect and really see where these fibers were, really explore it. And that's why I was so confident in the adductor thing, because I saw it a number of times. I dissected it out and I was like, yep, there it is. Um, you know, early studies really didn't look into a lot of measurement of the forces per se. So one of the things that happened early on in the literature was that there was a reporting of the importance of the VMO in the last 15 degrees of extension because clinically observed was the bulging of the muscle in that range. And so, of course, the vastus medialis oblique fibers are very low compared to the vastus lateralis. They are quite a bit lower. They're not in the same plane horizontally. So they do insert a little bit more inferiorly onto the patella. And it was a bit more evident when it would work, it would show up as like a, a popping up of that muscle. And so there was sort of like, it seemed like there was almost a string of assumptions that went from that. So there was this reportance of that people who had patellofemoral syndrome did not have a VMO pop up, that it was hollow, that it was missing, that it was wasted. And so it seemed like there was a quick trend towards making the assumption that what we needed to do was strengthen the vastus medialis oblique without necessarily impacting the other parts of the quadriceps, particularly the vastus lateralis. Now, what I will say is that there has always been a pretty good understanding, biomechanically speaking, that vastus lateralis is the strongest of all four of the quadriceps heads in the sense that it pulls the patella and it does direct a lot of laterally directed forces more so than any other head. It's also very big. So side note, another part of one of my reminders to my students when I'm teaching the lower extremity content is that the vastus lateralis is not just sitting anteriorly in the thigh. It wraps all the way around the thigh and sits underneath your iliotibial band. So it is very big. Vastus is the right name for it. It's, it's large. And so when the assumptions that the VMO was crucial in patellofemoral syndrome development we came from an assumption that it was wasted, it was no longer there, and that it was the best muscle to offset the vastus lateralis pull. Now, mechanically speaking, I doubt that <laughs> because it's a pretty small portion of a still big muscle just because its fiber direction was very angled. So then there was some anatomical studies where people were starting to dissect it out and find it and determine, you know, some biomechanical measures that it, it could be offsetting. But again, I, I would suggest that if it has a role, it's before it enters into the trochlear groove. And there is a lot of other studies out there on timing of the muscles turning on and off. But to focus in on just sort of the, the 15 degrees of extension and the straight leg raise rehabilitation protocols, what was happening was that as a result of determining that it was more apparent or more visible contracting and the last 15 degrees of extension, and concurrently, people thought that people with the condition didn't have it. They started rehabilitating people by only doing short arc extensions. Now, that seems like a pretty logical anatomical line of reasoning. 
And I would probably have agreed with it had I not been researching this pretty heavily. And what I found was that there was actually quite a bit of evidence from a very long time ago that we're doing some pretty interesting studies to prove or disprove that this was true. So the one crucial study that I used to always um, quote and point to uh, was actually done in the late 60s, <laughs> early 70s. Um, and what they did was they actually took a cadaveric limb and they cut the femur halfway up and they dissected out each head of the quadriceps and they affixed it to a frame and they created a pulley system where they tethered and sewed in a lead line to each quadriceps head. And then they had a pulley, which they hung a weight off of. And the idea was that they were trying to determine how much weight or force it took through each of the heads of the quadriceps to extend the knee. And they did it at varying angles. And, and to test out the VMO theory, they actually just tried using the VMO to extend the knee at the last 15 degrees of extension. And what they found was that the femur would fracture before the VMO would actually pull the, the leg up, up into the last 15 degrees of extension on its own without any other quadriceps helping. So I don't know what it was about that particular study, but I must have read it about three or four times in, well, more probably more in my thesis development. And I just thought that was so impactful. And I thought, here we are 40, 50 years later, and we still are clinging to this thought that the VMO is the only muscle or the most relevant muscle to work in the last 15 degrees of extension and that we should train our people with a straight leg raise or a short arc extension or an isometric extension at 15 degrees and that that's somehow going to fix the VMO and thus fix the patellar tracking or patellofemoral syndrome. And I just, I think that was the one study that I just started building these like, why do we have these assumptions? Because we've We've proven it over here. We've had this like pretty, you know, convincing biomechanical study. And then there was actually quite a bit of EMG studies after that, that really didn't support the fact that the VMO was only active in the last 15 degrees. And yet year after year, when I would talk to students that I was teaching that were physios uh, in training, when I would talk to clinicians, it was just present as a protocol. So then I started thinking like, is there a value to doing it anyways? Like, what's the what's the benefit? What's the harm? Well, the benefit is more likely to go back to that a very original comment that we started with at the beginning, which is, when does the patella enter the trochlear groove? It enters at 20, 30 degrees of, of flexion. So if you do short arc extensions, straight leg raises, mini squats, where you don't actually start to have the patella enter into that groove and cause pain, then you can do some exercise, can't you? So what I started to say to my students and some clinicians that I was having conversations about this with is that your reasoning is a little flawed while the technique may have some merit. So if you say to me, Judy, the reason that I'm doing these short arc extensions is because the VMO only works in the last 15 degrees, I'm not going to accept that as a good reason for giving that as a treatment protocol. However, if you said the reason that I'm doing these short arc extensions is because they can at least do some extension work in a pain-free range. And as they 
become more accustomed or less painful, I will increase the range to more functional ranges of extension and training. I'm on board with that. So it comes down to, are we using our anatomical knowledge to inform our treatment with a rationale that makes sense? So I think that that was where I got to with the VMO training protocols that I was really, I was on a mission for probably about 10 years to try and squash out this belief that we do this treatment protocol because the VMO only works in the last 15 degrees, because I don't believe that that's true. My own EMG study showed that too. Yeah, what did your EMG study showed? I did isometrics, but I did different ranges of motions that it was still active. The VMO activation was present at different ranges. It wasn't just in the last 15 degrees. And there's other studies that have shown the same thing. You know, full range extensions are going to work the whole quadriceps group the best. <laughs> well, that's not surprising. That's what they're meant to do. You know, let's go back to what the, the the anatomy was made to do. They were made to do that. So does it make sense that that is when it works best? Of course. Now, do we have other complications with patellofemoral syndrome? Sure. But then we have to have good rationale for why we do certain things. And we can't just continue to do it forever. Nobody's going to benefit from doing short arc extensions for six months. That doesn't help them go up and down the stairs. That doesn't help them get in and out of a chair or out of a bathtub. So we do need to tailor our treatment to people's functional needs. And we, of course, want to make sure that they can do things that reduce pain and increase function, but put it all together. Let's, let's take that anatomy, biomechanics and rationale and put it all together. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, 100%. I think this is a pretty good place to wrap up our interview. Are there any final thoughts before we end? Well, I think that... I probably made my points pretty, pretty obvious along the way that I, I really, I mean, I, I am, of course, a physio to my core and, and in my heart, even though I, I don't practice anymore. And I, I take pride in the fact that I'm trying to train the future generation with some really strong foundations in anatomy and mechanics. And, and you're a great example of that, Tiffany, that you've, you know, taken the lead and running with it. And I, I wish that more students and, you know, practicing physios will take a moment to to look back at their anatomy with a little bit more of a approach to foundation, rationale, lean into it when you can't find your quote unquote research proof that the approach and the protocol that you're using, what's the evidence that we have? The evidence is in the structure and the function. So why don't, why don't we use that to strengthen our profession and, you know, have more proof for the efficacy because there's tons of it in our practice. And I think a lot of times people overlook the value of saying out loud, well, the reason that I'm doing this is because it anatomically makes sense. And likewise, there's also opportunity to say to someone, I understand that you're doing this approach, but it doesn't make anatomical sense to me. So let's try and figure that out because there's always going to be someone who will take a portion of the information and try to make it into like a practice, right? So I'm hoping that, you know, we can continue to offer support to people for learning their anatomy in more detail that it'll inspire someone to look back in their atlas and their uh, textbooks and revisit their anatomy and maybe also 
learn a little bit more about mechanics so that they can understand why things are happening the way they do and and will continue to improve the lives of many people. Yeah, I guess uh, perhaps a challenge out there is for MSK physios to develop the x-ray vision you talked about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easier to teach it when you're in the lab and you have an opportunity to revisit those layers and those structural, you know, positions. And But there are so many tools out there now also that people have access to. There's online resources that also mimic some of the anatomical learning that they you might have done years ago. It's not a bad idea to, to revisit it and then put those x-ray vision goggles on when you go see your next client and really ask yourself the question. Sometimes it's just asking yourself the question, what else is here? What else is deep to this structure? What else could possibly be contributing to this particular presentation? And I think that's the starting point of all good practice is questioning yourself, uh, making sure that you're accurate and revisiting the, the truths of the structure. And it's definitely one of the goals of me running this paincast to facilitate discussion, important discussion, critical thinking, reflection on our practices, and as you said, ultimately to impact many lives. Yeah, and I think that's a great effort, and I applaud you doing these. I know it's a lot of work to put together, so I do appreciate you uh, inviting me here to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you for your time. No problem. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on patellofemoral pain. I hope you found it intriguing. Here's an important update I want to provide to all of you. I am leading a national student committee on pain science under the pain science division, and it is my hope to inspire more physiotherapy students to learn and be passionate about anything pain and physiotherapy related. So starting from January to July, our mid-month episode will be coming from the students. I will be guiding them through the whole process of episode production, including researching the topic, reaching out to experts, formulating interview questions, recording the interview, and editing the audio. You will still hear from me in the episode's release on the beginning of the month. Please support our podcast by subscribing and rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean, and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.